chain of events, cause and effect. We analyze what went right and what went wrong as we discover that many outcomes can be predicted, planned for, and even prevented. I'm John Chigi, and this is Causality. Causality is part of the Engineered Network. To support our shows, including this one, head over to our Patreon page, and for other great shows, visit engineered.network today. Maccabiah. In the middle of my university degree, there was an incident that occurred in Maccabiah, Israel, that rocked the Australian sporting and engineering communities. You see, they hold uh, sporting games there uh, regularly. Most recent games, the 19th, were held in 2013. But the incident we're going to look at occurred on the 15th games, and that was held in 1997. The games themselves are an international Jewish multi-sport event. It was first held in Palestine in 1932 under the British mandate, and since 1950, quadrennially, in the state of Israel. It's the third largest sporting event in the world, with 9,000 athletes competing on behalf of 78 countries, and it's often referred to as the Jewish Olympics. Maccabiah is open to Jewish athletes as well as Israeli athletes, regardless of religion. The 15th game specifically included 5,300 participants from 56 nations competing in 38 separate athletic events. The opening ceremony on July the 14th at 8pm local time, was held at Ramat Gan Stadium. The path of the procession of athletes into the stadium started across the other side of the Yarkon River, unceremoniously in a car park, but crossing a bridge before entering the stadium itself. Athletes crossed the bridge in English alphabetical order, starting with Austria, followed by Australia. Just after the Austrian team had crossed the bridge six abreast, about 100 of the 373-member Australian team were on the bridge. The combined weight of those people caused the pedestrian bridge to collapse in the middle, sending the last few Austrians and all of the Australian athletes on the bridge into the Yarkon River. 67 people were injured in the incident and were transferred to nearby hospitals, where Gregory Small, a 37-year-old bowler from Sydney, Australia, was pronounced dead on arrival. The remaining 66 victims did not appear to have life-threatening injuries, at least not initially. They had broken bones, a bit of water inhalation, that's about it. Fortunately, in some respects, the river was only 1.6 metres deep at that point, so no one had drowned. The water in the river, though, was far from clean. It was described by some people as being like a sewer. Of course it wasn't, but it was far from clean. The problem was that wounds from the accident had caused blood infections in some of those that were injured. And within a few hours of admission to the hospital, a number of the athletes that were injured began to show signs of asphyxia. By the following morning... Seven of them were in a critical condition. Yeti Bennett, a 50-year-old bowler, died later that day from asphyxia. Elizabeth Sawicki, a 47-year-old member of the delegation's bridge team, died on July the 26th from complications following an infection. Warren Zines, a 54-year-old bowler, died on August the 10th. The final death toll from the accident was four people. Beyond that, 
Many others, they endured major infections requiring rehospitalization. And one extreme case was that of Sasha Elterman, a 15-year-old tennis player. She underwent 18 surgeries in the six months following the collapse, 13 of them brain surgeries. As of three years ago, Sasha had undergone a total of 28 surgeries. That's a lot, vast majority being brain surgery. She's lost 40% of her lung capacity and suffers from periodic convulsions. The cause of the subsequent infections was discovered in the autopsy of Warren Zines, a fungus called, bear with me, Pseudosalachiera boidii is a very rare but dangerous trigger for pneumonia. And this fungus is resistant to pretty much every available drug therapy. Infections, when they start, spread to the brain, kidneys, heart, thyroid, and they can persist for many, many years and can always be a recurrent risk. One look at that bridge, and I would never have set foot on it. I'm not even a civil structural engineer, and I know enough to know that. If you want to see what this bridge looked like, have a look at some links in the show notes. But not everyone is an engineer. Not everyone looks at a bridge and says, that looks dodgy. I'm not walking on that, no matter what you pay me. These were athletes. They're not engineers. And when you're an engineer, you're designing things for people that they, you have to make it safe for the general public. You're not, you can't expect everyone to understand what you understand. You will walk on a bridge. You want to know it's safe. You expect it's safe. You trust that it's going to be safe. And I guess beyond the trust that the public have in engineers to do our jobs well, there's legislation that exists for a good reason. There's independent design validation, inspections, formal qualifications, all of which are designed to prevent this sort of thing happening. They trusted the bridge was constructed properly. Probably just implicitly. They didn't even give it a second thought. How many bridges have they walked across in their lives? Well, this one's no different, right? Just a bridge, walk across the other side. It's not very far. River's not that wide. The engineers that designed this bridge failed the public in every possible way. And for instance, people lost their lives for something that had been essentially... Bridge design's been around. Design construction and testing bridges has been around for thousands of years. This is not a new thing. How can this sort of thing happen? Once it became clear that they'd need a short bridge for the ceremony, the organizing committee for the Games requested two quotations for its design and construction. One was from the Israeli Defense Forces, often referred to as the IDF, and uh, they designed civil structures for the previous Games. And, you know, another quote was requested from an existing contractor working with them on other aspects of the game. And uh, that company was called Agunit, I believe it's pronounced. Now, Tamir Rauner was the engineer from IDF who'd been involved in the previous years, uh, previous games, I should say, uh, and with the preliminary works in the 97 bridge. Now, the IDF design was for a steel structure. It would have been capable of bearing uh, the load of 650 people, static load, it came in at about 111,000 Australian dollars at the time. Uh, the design exceeded the minimum weight load standards required by legislation. Better safe than sorry, right? The 
Agunit quotation weighed in at only $34,750. That's about, well, just under one third of the price. That's quite a bit cheaper. Although the selection process that the organization committee used to determine the winning quotation is not clear, clearly they decided to select the cheaper of the two. The uh, managing director of that company, Adam Mishuri, subcontracted the actual construction works to another company called Ben Ezra Caragula Construction. They were given a contract for $27,000. It's not uncommon for prime contractors to skim a percentage off the top for their project management and their time dealing with bank guarantees and all that stuff. That's not uncommon. Several of the media reports afterwards suggested that uh, that money was kept for themselves and wasn't passed on. Well, that's how subcontracting works. But in any case, that's how much money they had to work with. It was 27 k Now, I looked for quite a while, actually, on the web to see if I could find information about Ben Ezra Construction Company, but I couldn't find much. What's pretty clear at the time of the construction, that company had never built a bridge before or a bridge of any kind, and none of the staff involved had any experience building bridges either. So, in addition to the, there were several investigations. The first one was by the Israeli police. They conducted their own. But after the incident, Israel's Deputy Minister of Education at the time, Mosh Paled, convened a public commission. It was chaired by Brigadier General Yashai Dotan, and it would be later referred to as the Dotan Report, that released their findings on the 23rd of July, 1997. The Dotan Report noted several major issues. There was no evidence of any previous project history. Also, Baruch Karagula and Yahusha Ben Ezra were not licensed to build bridges and had no experience building them either. Micah Bar-Ilan, the engineer from Agunet, who designed the bridge and approved the purchase of its components, had never designed a bridge before. Stage props don't count as bridges. Baralan claimed that his bridge as designed would support 250 kilograms per square meter. However, the government standards required pedestrian bridges to support 500 kilograms per square meter. The Dotan report investigation estimated the actual load-bearing capacity of the bridge was actually less than 250 kilos per square meter that Bar-Ilan claimed. In addition, they found that there was no supervision by the lead contractor, that's Ugunit, during the construction process. Disassembly of the structure after the incident found that they had used, I guess you'd call them substandard materials. They showed that it had been constructed out of rusting metal pipes that were bound together with wire, with minimal bolts, minimal screws, and minimal fixings. The police report also suggested that there was an underlying assumption that the bridge only needed to function for a few hours, and therefore spending large amounts of money on it was not justifiable. This fact and any subsequent restrictions on load-bearing capacity weren't captured in a design basis or stated anywhere in writing. And as you know, very quickly from contract law, if it's not in writing, it doesn't exist. So, the fallout from this incident. 
On the 15th of March, 1998, in Tel Aviv Magistrate Court, all five accused pleaded not guilty. On the 17th of April, 2000, over two years later, all five accused were convicted of negligent homicide, building and building without permits. Micah Bar Ilan was sentenced to 21 months in prison. His claims that he had warned authorities that the bridge design could only handle 100 people at a time and that a monitor should be appointed to ensure that this was the case were unsubstantiated. Video from prior to the event demonstrated that there was no monitor present in any case. Ben Ezra and Caragula were sentenced to 15 months in prison. Adam Mishuri was sentenced to nine months in prison. Yoram Eval was sentenced to six months of community service, although he'd resigned from his position immediately prior to the sentencing. In 2006, the stage company, Ogunit, were acquired by Stage Design Israel, proudly listing Ogunit's record with 40 years of, ex- of existence Egunit made countless corporate jobs in Israel and abroad, both in theatre, television, and exhibitions. So their LinkedIn profile states. Yuram Ival is now the general manager of the Maccabiah village, and Ronald Bakalaz, who was president of the union in 1997, is now chairman of the board of the Maccabiah village. Both now, as they were then, are members of the organisational committee. So again, it's a bit of a sad story. What's the lesson that we take away from this? I guess there's a few. In engineering, subcontracting is a part of what we have to do. We can't do everything in-house. We have to rely on subcontractors that have expertise. But if you're going to subcontract something to an external organization, their track record's critical. But not just that they as an organization have performed a task previously, but they have performed it well to good standards and have a good reputation. But checking those qualifications from a company is, you know, it's important, but it's just the first step because many contractors will do a bait and switch on you. They'll say, person X with 25 years experience will be leading this project and then they switch it out for a junior with no experience and then they charge the same amount of money. You got to stay on top of that. You control the contractor but do you control their subcontractor? Because it's common, pretty common practice for prime contractors to sub out pockets of work to others. And in this case, there was apparently no vetting process of Ogunit subcontractor Ben Ezra by the organizing committee, or none that was shown. Not everyone is an expert in everything. I get that. That's fine. Organizing committees in general, they would consist of a pretty wide background of experience and expertise. But in most cases, they're not engineers. And even if they are, it doesn't mean that they've built bridges before or any kind of construction experience for that matter. So how could they know if they were being handed something that was any good if they're not qualified to do so? And the way, of course, that people overcome this, what do they do? They employ an independent checker for the design work. I'll give you an example. In Brisbane recently, my where I live at the moment, the duplication of the Gateway Bridge It was only awarded for construction after three independent civil engineering firms were employed to check, recheck, and recheck again the whole design 
to ensure it was as safe as possible before it was constructed. They didn't want to take any chances. The engineering process that we follow, we create a design, step one, that's what we do. Step two, check and approve the design with as many different disciplines as possible, including the customer. Step three, we construct what we have designed as per the design because the design is approved. And then fourth and final step, we confirm that construction was as built as per the design. Now, these four steps may seem simple and obvious, but this bridge collapse that happened, that cost the people their lives, it failed because the design was never reviewed. There were no blueprints created. There was no submission to the client. There was no design basis that said the basic function of the bridge. There was none of that. And we can't actually prove it was constructed per the design because there's never any confirmation that it was. You could argue that the organizing committee didn't know that the designer constructor was capable of performing the work. But it was up to them to decide who should get the work. If they weren't sure, they should have employed someone else to cross-check the design. They failed. The designer never should have accepted the job. Designing that bridge without communicating any restrictions with no design basis, no blueprints, is unconscionable. They failed. And they got the heaviest sentence, and rightly so. The constructor never should have agreed to perform the works without at least someone in their company having some experience building similar structures. And they certainly should never have built anything without a permit. They failed. Interestingly, and perhaps disturbingly or tellingly, however you want to think about it, the mayor of Ramatgan, Zvi Bar, allowed the construction of the bridge in his territory without a permit. He couldn't say he didn't know. He was on the same committee that approved the works in the first place, and, and yet no permit was ever applied for. They also failed. But there were no charges laid. Australian officials and engineering professionals were pretty disgusted at the sentences that were handed down by the courts. Ultimately, punishing those responsible can't bring back the debt. That's obvious. But in most countries, with regulated professional engineering practices, failures like this, they would lead to someone the persons involved being barred from performing engineering design review construction for the rest of their career. That's what would happen here. But in this case, it didn't. So when you're assessing alternative quotes for work, always ask yourself, why is one so much cheaper than the others? There's usually a reason. And you get to make the choice. But in this case, that choice cost people their lives. If you're enjoying Causality and want to support the show, you can, like one of our backers, Chris Stone. He and many others are patrons of the show via Patreon, and you can find it at patreon.com slash johnchidgey, all one word. So if you'd like to contribute something, anything at all, it's very much appreciated. This was Causality. I'm John Chidgey. Thanks for listening. <laughs>